God, we desire that you would speak to us. God, we desire that you would do, that you, God, would do exactly what you did with those men on that walk to Emmaus, God, that you would cause our hearts to burn within us, Lord, as we see you in the Scripture. God, speak to us. God, we just tell you again, we don't, we don't want to just go through the motions of this, Lord, but we, don't, we want to worship you. We want to hear from you in your word and worship you, God, for what you've done and what you said and who you are. Please help us, God. Deal with our distractions, Lord. Put them aside and let us focus in to hear your voice from your word. Thank you, God, for your help. Lord, you said that if you didn't spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will you not also freely in Christ give us all things? So we trust you to do what we've just asked for. We trust you, God. We put it in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis chapter 3. Banishment, as it says at the top of your study guide there, banishment from God's presence. A severe and a merciful act. So I think we're going to see that as we read through the Scriptures as we talk through this today, that these, these people, Adam and Eve, are about to be banished from the garden of God, from His presence. And we're going to see this as a severe act and at the same time, a merciful act. Here's what we've already seen in Genesis chapter 3. We've already seen man rebel against his Creator. Remember that? He reaches out for autonomy. He reaches out for independence from God. They want to be their own God. We've already seen that happen in Genesis chapter 3. We see God confront them. God interrogate them. God pronounce judgment on them. And yet at the same time, you see God's grace just shining through as in the midst of the judgment, He promises them that there's one coming who's going to crush the tempter's head. And then He clothes them. And this picture of being clothed in robes of righteousness, He clothes them with this animal that was slaughtered in their place. And so we see God's grace right in the midst of it. And so we come to the last three verses, and this is what we're going to continue to see. We're going to see God's holiness and judgment the severity of God, and it's going to be mixed with God's grace and God's mercy. Look at verse 22, and let's read it together. Verse 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. To till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim. At the east of the garden of Eden. And a flaming sword which turned every way. To guard the way to the tree of life. So let's start off. Let's just talk about the plain sense. Of what these verses mean. Okay. I want you to first see that you, what you have here. And this is awesome. You have a, a triune conversation, okay? A conversation between the persons of the triune God. It's pretty amazing here, okay? We, get, we actually get insight in the convos amongst the Godhead. Is that awesome? That's awesome, right? Look at what it says. It says, the Lord God, that's singular, the Lord God, that's, as we've talked about before, Yahweh Elohim, the one true God, 
And he, said, he says, the man has become like one of us. That's plural. It's one God, singular. The Lord God has become like one of us. The one and only God. There's only one God. One creator God. And yet he's plural. And that's awesome. It's an awesome thing. And this just gives us insight into the unfathomable nature of God. Our feeble minds, our feeble minds can't get it. We can't process. How can, be, how can he be one in three? And we just can't pull it together because the nature of God is beyond us. It's beyond what we can exhaustively explain. One true God, and yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is an awesome God, okay? And you see these sort of conversations are scattered throughout the Bible. We already saw one in Genesis 1.26. Uh, we see one in Psalm 2. We see one in Psalm 110. You see these kind of divine dialogues going down. These triune conversations happening, okay? So what is God saying here? This awesome God, His nature's beyond what we can even explain. And what's He saying? And He's saying something about the fallen man. The man who has fallen. He says, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now, if you remember, that's what Satan promised, right? Satan promised in chapter three, verse five. He said, if you eat of that tree, he said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He said, that's what you were promised. I promise you, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. But the problem is, is he he put it out there as a good thing. And yet it wasn't a good thing. And what we see right here is something that was detrimental to them they now have knowledge of good and evil like God but not exactly like God because you see God knows good and evil he's he has a knowledge of good and evil because it's everything that's opposite of him everything that's opposite of his nature of his goodness his greatness his his he's just incredible everything opposite of him he has knowledge of good and evil but we now and Adam and Eve have knowledge of good and evil as in they have experimented in it They are evil themselves. They know evil now. Not like God knows it. Not exactly like He knows it. But now they know it because they themselves are evil. They have walked in evil. Dustin said last week that they know of evil like a cancer patient knows of cancer. And so I'll just extend that analogy and say God knows of evil like a cancer doctor knows of cancer. And so there's this knowledge. It's like God, but it's not Exactly the same. They have this knowledge of good and evil. And so what we see, we see God acknowledging, God's discussing this fact that man has become intimately and experimentally in the know about evil. Okay? So notice here the incomplete sentence. Look at it. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good good and evil. And here it is. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And you just have this incomplete sentence hanging there. Lest he, lest he take this tree and he lives forever. And it's like he doesn't finish it out. So here, let me explain it. You've got this vast multitude of trees in the Garden of Eden that they can eat. You can eat of all the trees of the garden. But two trees in particular are highlighted. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden because this is saying to God, I don't I want autonomy from you. I want independence from you. I want to be my own God. But to but to eat of the tree of life was allowed. 
And it seems from this verse, verse 22, that to, that to eat of this tree would actually extend their life out forever. It says, take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So somehow God has set it up to eat of this tree. They would live on forever. So for Adam to eat of this tree prior to their rebellion would have been a good thing, right? Live on forever in the perfection that God has given But for Adam and Eve to eat of this tree now would not be a good thing. This would be a detrimental thing. This means they would continue on in their sin forever and ever and ever, separated from God. It would literally become a hell on earth if they were to eat of this tree now after they sin. And so the the incomplete sin is so it says... And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, as if to say the consequences of this is too heavy to even talk about. It's too heavy to even explain that if they eat of that tree, it's going to be hell on earth forever and ever. And what we're going to see, when we see, that's in verse 22, when we see the next two verses, is we're going to see God taking action off of this thought that he has. Take an action off of what he just said, okay? So here in the action, I want you to notice this. Notice in the action that he takes, I want you to notice the severity of God's action. The severity of, the, of man's banishment from God, from the presence of God, from the garden of God. Adam and Eve did not want to leave. First thing it says there in verse 23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent, sent, I highlight that word, God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. And then it says in the next verse, so he drove out the man. Verse 22, verse 23 says he sent him out. And then you read in the next verse, says he drove him out. He sent him out and then he drove him out. So at first it seems that God had told him that God had instructed the man to, to be removed from the Garden of Eden, to be removed from the presence of God. But apparently that was not an easy thing for him to do because eventually Adam and Eve had to be driven out of the Garden. This word has more intensity. It's the idea of being cast out, being kicked out, or even being divorced out. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden. It's a severity here. So I want you to see that. This is not a peaceful departure from the Garden of Eden. They didn't stroll out whistling. They didn't stroll out thinking, good, we didn't die. They would rather die than be parted from the presence of God. They were driven out. They don't want to be driven out. This is a severe moment, a severe and terrible moment in their lives. And to make things worse, to make things more severe, after they're expelled from the garden, what happens next? And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. And a flaming sword was turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So he places a mighty angel there so that they don't come back. So they're pushed out, expelled, cast out, divorced from the presence of God. And a situation is set up with mighty angels that says you can't even come back in. This is a severe and horrible moment. Now we just read about, we read the word just then, cherubim. Okay, so what is a, what is cherubim? If you do a word study in the Bible, uh, you find out that these are amazing, uh, angelic beings that are almost always associated with the presence of God. And I say always associated with the presence of God. So you got these angelic beings, these, these, these uh, 
cherubim, always associated with the presence of God. Let me tell you why I say that. Here we got them in the Holy of Holies of the Garden of Eden, and here they are in the presence of God. And when Adam and Eve were kicked out, this is what you see, cherubim at the gates. That's one place. Another place is this. If you look at the building of the temple and the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies where God dwelt, you had these big statues of cherubim with their wings over the ark, over the mercy seat. These, these, these creatures are characterized, associated with all the time, with the presence of the living God. They started calling God throughout the Bible. For example, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 6.2, they call God the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubim. I mean, they're associated with the presence of God. They call Him God who dwells between these creatures. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 10. You see cherubim. They're dwelling and looking at the glory of God and worshiping this God. You see it in Revelation chapter 4. You see it in Isaiah 6. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before Him. This is what you see, okay? So there's, the cherubim are associated with the presence of God. They dwell constantly in the presence of the Almighty. Therefore, when Adam and Eve are kicked out, they're kicked out from the presence of these cherubim and the, and the gates blocked by cherubim. They're being kicked out of the presence of God. How severe is that? Think about the presence of the living God. When you have sin, it's terrifying. But when you're like Adam and Eve were no sin and pure before their maker, the presence of God is fullness of joy. The, the presence of God is satisfaction forever and ever and ever. It's fullness of pleasure in the presence of God. And they get kicked out from the presence of God and the cherubim. This is a severe and horrific moment in the history of mankind. It's the severity of the situation. Now I want you to think about, think about the mercy of God in this banishment from the garden. Think about the mercy of God, okay? Although this was a punishment, although this was a consequence of their sin, God was actually acting in mercy when He did this. You say, how so? How in the world is God acting in mercy by kicking them out of the Holy of Holies of the Garden of Eden? And here's what I mean by that. If you remember, God's motive was what? God's motive was if they stay here, they're going to try to work it up. They're going to try to fix the problem in their own flesh, their own righteousness, and lay hold of the tree of life. And they're going to put themselves in a worse situation than they're already in. They're going to live forever in their sin. They're going to live forever in hell on earth. And so this is an act of mercy that God's motive is to drive them out because he's got something better planned. He's got something different planned for them. There's a good, there's a good picture of this in Genesis 19. You don't have to flip there. But in Genesis chapter 19, you got Lot and his family has been told to get out. Get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm about to destroy it. I'm about to bring down fire and brimstone on it. So get out of there. And they linger and they linger and they linger and they linger. And it says in Genesis 19, verse 16, And while he lingered, the men, and that's talking about these angels, they took hold of his hand, his wife's, and the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So here's this picture of the mercy of God in grabbing him and moving him somewhere else while he lingers. And this is the picture. God drives them out of the Garden of Eden. He drives them out, and this is a merciful act, lest they eat of the tree, unless they live forever. 
So what does God intend for them? If God does not intend for them punishment forever for their sin and hell, which is what they deserve, what we all deserve. If God doesn't intend that, what does He intend? God intends a time coming when they will get to be in the presence of the living God again. They'll be restored to the presence of the living God. In fact, they'll be restored to the tree of life. And God has it in mind. Right now, they're they're separated from God, banished from His presence. But a time's coming when it'll be restored. When they'll be face to face with their Maker. And they'll eat of the tree of life. No more separation. So here's what this does. So what I want to do is this, with that thought in mind, the mercy of God in driving them out because He's got something greater in mind where they're going to be restored to His presence. With that in mind, with that in mind, I want to zoom out here and get a bigger picture, okay? We're looking at Genesis 3, verse 22 to 24, but I want to zoom out, okay, and get a bigger picture. And here's what I want you to see. The Bible begins and ends with a very similar picture. Chapter 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden very pointedly mirrors the last two chapters, chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. Okay, so the first two chapters of the Bible mirrors the last two chapters of the Bible. You've got the Garden of Eden, the dwelling place where man dwelt with God. And you've got the last two chapters, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where man dwells with God. And you've got this picture on both ends, okay? So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that. You can turn with me to Revelation 21. I want you to see this picture. We're going to read Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Remember, the first two chapters of the Bible mirror the last two chapters. Verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so what we see here is full restoration. In the Garden of Eden, man dwells with God. They're kicked out because of their sin. And we see in Revelation 21, full restoration. And God is going to dwell with man again. It's going to happen again. I want you to notice some of the similarities, okay? In both places, in the Garden of Eden and in the Holy City, New Jerusalem, in both places, in both places, we're going to see the presence of the tree of life. Revelation 22, verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. There it is again, just like in the first two chapters, just like in chapter 2. There's the tree of life, which bore 12, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In both places, we see the presence of a great river, the great river that runs through this place. Look at verse 1, 22 verse 1. And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. And of the Lamb. 
In both places, we see the total absence of death and pain and sorrow. 21 verse 4, look at it again. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Sorrow, crying, shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. You see in the similarities here. There's total absence in both places. Total absence of a temple. No temple there. Look at Revelation chapter 21 verse 22. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no temple in these places. Why? Because the Garden of Eden was a temple where God dwelt with man. It was a tabernacle where God dwelt with man. And this whole place and God Himself are the tabernacle of God in Revelation 21 and 22. In both places we see the total absence of curses. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse for the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and His servants shall serve Him. And in both places we see cherubim and seraphim falling down before Him. In both places we see God's goodness poured out. Ridiculous amounts of goodness just poured out on undeserving people. We see it in both places. In both places we get introduction and destruction of Satan. The, the chapter just after, you got chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. The chapter just after the description of the Garden of Eden is the introduction of the evil one, Satan. And in that new Jerusalem that's coming, the description of that new Jerusalem, just before that, in chapter 20 of Revelation, we get a description of his destruction. You see these mirroring each other all the way through. But, I want to ask you a question. What is the most glorious thing about both of these places? What is the most glorious thing about both of these places. I want you to think about it. Anybody know? What's the most glorious thing about the Garden of Eden? But then they lost it and then the restored, this restored New Jerusalem is coming. What's the greatest thing? The presence of the living God is there. This is the greatest thing. The presence of God is there. Man got to dwell with God. What was the greatest thing? What was the most tragic consequence of what we just read in, in Genesis 3, 22-24 and man's kicked out of the Garden of Eden? What is the most tragic consequence? They, love, they were kicked out from the presence of the living God. They don't get, they love, they, they're separated from God Himself. The living One. The glorious One. And they're separated from Him now. What is the greatest thing about the the new city coming. That Holy Spirit, when we get to see Him, when we get to see Him, what's the greatest thing about Revelation 21 and 22? Let me read a verse. 22, verse 3. Excuse me, verse 4. They shall see His face. They shall see His face. We get to see God. No longer dimly like in a, in a mirror like a talk, but now we get to see Him face to face. It's the greatest thing about what's coming. The greatest thing about what's coming. So what we have in Genesis 3, the section we're in in Genesis, what we have in that section of man being banished from the presence of the living God, we actually have the abundant mercy of God as He drives man away 
from his presence and from the tree of life. But what he has in mind is there's a time coming when it's going to be restored. They're going to be restored to all these things that they had lost and even more so. So Genesis 3, 22-24 is our bridge until one day we get to Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, so I want you to think about this. So here's a question you might ask. Or something you might just say. You might say, well, what's this all about? Because we didn't get kicked out of the garden. You weren't there. Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. It's their problem, right? And we know this. Let me give you two reasons why this is your problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. Number one, we are in Adam. And when he was driven out, we were driven out. And you see it in the same way. We were in Adam. When he was driven out, we were driven out. Romans 5.12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because of all sin. We are in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 says, In Adam all die. In Adam all die. So number one is that when he was driven out, we are driven out. It's our problem, not just his problem, their problem. Number two is this. We have sinned against this God. Isaiah 59 2 says, Your sin has separated you. Like we just read in Genesis 3, your sin has separated you from your God. Your iniquities has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Do you hear how severe that is? This is my favorite verse to say why a cute little prayer will not save you. If you're here today dependent on a cute little prayer that you prayed and maybe that saved me, it won't. That verse just said your sin has separated you from your God so that He will not hear. It's a severe thing. We've done this. It's not just their problem. This is our problem. So here's a question. So how do we all get from Genesis 3, banished from His presence, on the track to hell forever. How do we get from there to Revelation 21, 22, restored into the presence of the living God? Fullness of joy, at His right hand, pleasures forevermore. How do we get from banished from His presence to Revelation 21 and 22 in the New Jerusalem? How do we get there, okay? And there's a biblical theme, and I want you to see it. There's a biblical theme that runs all the way through the Bible. If you can see it, you understand it. It goes from Genesis to Revelation. It will help you understand how to go from banished from His presence, Genesis 3, to reunited to Him in Revelation 20, to restored to His presence in Revelation 20. Excuse me, Revelation 21. If you understand this theme, and here's the theme, it's the tabernacle of God or the temple of God. And I put them together because the tabernacle was that original one that they made that was mobile, right? And the temple, is that, it's the same thing, but they made a more, a more solid foundation because it was in one place there in Jerusalem. But this is what I'm talking about. If you understand the theme of the dwelling place of God from Genesis to Revelation, of the tabernacle, the, ten, the temple from Genesis to Revelation, you have the answer to the question, how do we get from banished from His presence to Revelation 21 and 22, okay? Everybody with me where we're going? So let's talk about the tabernacle and the temple. Let's talk about the tabernacle or the temple, okay? <clears throat> so, think with me. So the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, and the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22, are, are, they mirror each other, right? You see that, they mirror each other. I mean, mainly because it's the presence of God. It's the dwelling place where God dwells with man and many other reasons. They're meant to mirror each other in the Bible, okay? 
And now what I want you to see is that the thing that connects those two is the temple, the tabernacle of God all the way through. So you've got the dwelling place of God in the Garden of Eden, that tabernacle, that temple. It's lost. Man sins against God and God sets up a little a dwelling place on earth. A place where He would dwell among His people called a tabernacle, eventually called a temple. And one day, understanding that what that means and the symbolism that's there will help you understand how to get to that final tabernacle in Revelation 21. Okay, so this is what I want you to think through this. Okay, so I just said, I just said the description of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, I just said that that's a tabernacle. That's a, you're supposed to think of that like a tabernacle, a temple, a dwelling place of God. How do we know that? How do we know that? And the main reason is what I just said. Because God dwells with man here, is taken away, and then God sets up this place. Tells Moses and those people coming out of Egypt to build it. And they set up this place. And God says, I'm going to dwell there with my people. So just the fact that it's the dwelling place of God should make you think of it as a tabernacle. Just that in and of itself. Let me read this uh, about the tabernacle. Hebrews 9.5. The copy is talking about the tabernacle that was on earth. The copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That's what it calls it. A copy, a shadow. It's, it's to picture something. Copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Okay, so you're getting that, right? So here's the, the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And then, and then we get this, this dwelling place of God. It's a copy. It's a shadow. It's to point you to what, the, what was lost in the garden and what's coming in the New Jerusalem. And the tabernacle points you to these things. Let me give you other clues that make, should make you think of the Garden of Eden as a tabernacle or as a temple. Other reasons. Reason number one is this. This is the place where cherubim dwelt, right? We saw that in Genesis 3.24. It's the place where cherubim dwelt. They blocked the presence. They blocked the entrance into the presence of God into this temple. And that's what you see that's what you see in, all over the temple. You see cherubim on, those, on the curtains and all over the walls. Cherubim drawn. And you see cherubim that are in the Holy of Holies. And so you've got this picture here of the Garden of Eden with the tabernacle of the temple. Number two is this. There's garden imagery all over the temple if you read the building of it. And, it, and, and in this garden, this garden imagery, it's supposed to illustrate the scenery that's in the Garden of Eden. Reason number three is very simple. Ezekiel spoke of the Garden of Eden as a tabernacle, as a temple. Especially Ezekiel 28 verse 13 where it talks about the sanctuaries. It's referring to the Garden of Eden. It says the sanctuaries. Reason number four is this. It's a place of rest. The tabernacle is a place of rest. Isaiah 66 verse 1. Where's the house that you will build me? Where's the place of my rest? The tabernacle was called a place of rest. Well, what do we see in the Garden of Eden? We say God in that seventh day, He rests. And there's no ending. There's no evening and morning. You remember Dustin talking about that? And so this day continues on. And He takes the man in Genesis 2.15. And it literally says, not just He put Him, but He rested Him there. This is a place of the rest of God. The Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. And last one, reason number five. And there's many reasons. I'm just giving you five. Reason number five is this. Adam is put forth in Genesis 2 as the priest of the Garden of Eden. The priest of the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis 2.15, he was called to do what? Cultivate and keep it. Cultivate and keep it. 
If you look in other places in the Scripture where those two words are used together all throughout the Old Testament, what you find again and again is these two words put together is the job that the priest was to do in the temple. And so here's what you have, this picture. The Garden of Eden is to be symbolized in the tabernacle, the temple, that will come a little bit later that God is going to build, okay? All right, so, so that's the Garden of Eden. The, the tabernacle temple points to the Garden of Eden. What was lost? And the tabernacle temple is going to point to what is to be restored in Revelation 21 and 22. How do I know that? How do I know that? For all the same reasons, all the same descriptions in Revelation 21 and 22 are found there. And they're found in the temple. And you see it parallel in each other. But I have something even more simple than that. Revelation 21, 3 says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, he just saw the new Jerusalem come down. And he says, Behold, the tabernacle calls it a tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with men. And so here we have this picture. The tabernacle of the temple. It's a picture. It's an illustration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Man dwelling in the presence of God and what's to be restored in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay? So, if you understand this, I'll say it again. If you understand how the earthly tabernacle connects the first tabernacle in the Garden of Eden to the final tabernacle in Revelation 21 and 22. If you can understand that, this will help you understand how to be restored into the presence of God. Your sin has separated you from God, but understanding this tabernacle temple will help you understand how to be restored into the presence of God. Let me say it another way. Let me say it like this. The first tabernacle, Eden was the place where a man dwelt with God. Think about it. Just think about it. It was lost in the passage we just read. It was lost. And they were driven out of the presence of God. And the tabernacle of the Old Testament is meant to teach us how to be restored. It's a copy, a shadow of those heavenly things. It's meant to teach us this lesson of how to be restored to the presence of God to dwell with Him forever and ever and ever. So let's think about it for a minute, okay? So the theme in the Bible, there's things in the Bible that run from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? So the theme in the Bible of the temple, the tabernacle, from Genesis to Revelation, and that's on the back of your study guide there. So let's talk about it for a minute. First thing we see, so just try to think through the flow of thought of the Bible. We see man dwelling with God in that tabernacle called the Garden of Eden. And as we've already read, they're driven away from it, Right? Okay, Genesis 3, 3, 22, 24. They're driven away from the presence of the living God. Now, here's what God's going to do. As we keep reading through the Bible, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, we're going to see God pull out a special people for Himself. And He's going to make a special place where they can dwell with Himself. Where they can dwell with God. And then He's going to teach them how to enter in to that place because it's not the same as it was in Eden because sin has entered into the situation. It's not the same. So He's going to teach them how to enter into this place. And all of this is going to teach us something. How do we go from banished to dwelling in the presence of God? How do we do that? And you see this. Okay. So you see this very clearly in the first three books of the Bible. Okay. First three books of the Bible. You think about it. They've been banished from the presence of God. And when you read the book of Exodus, 
Everybody thinks of the first half of it, and that's good, which is where God pulls out a people for Himself. And so here you have this people, the people of God. It went back into Genesis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you've got the people of God being pulled out of Egypt. So you've got the people of God at the beginning of Exodus. But now many people think about the second half of Exodus. And in the second half of Exodus, you've got God building a place for this people, giving them instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the place where they will dwell with His people. But then the book of Exodus ends and you got Moses there and the thing has been built and he goes to enter in and he can't. He can't enter into this place. It's too full of the glory of God and he cannot enter in. And so then we get the next book of the Bible, Leviticus. And this book teaches us how. How can man, sinful, rebellious man, dwell with a living God? And the book, of the book of Leviticus walks us through it and shows us the high priest, the mediator that must be there. Shows us the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice, someone, something, blood being shed on your behalf, dying in your place. He shows us that in the book of Leviticus. So let's talk about that for a minute, okay? So the people, God pulls out a people for himself. These people will stand as a sign. For all people, every nation, tribe, and tongue, it has never, ever, ever been about one people, right? Even before he pulls his people out, he tells Abraham, the great, great, great grandfather, in your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed. It's never been about one people. So God's going to pull out a people for himself, and through this people, it's going to be a sign for us about how God is going to take all sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue and bring them back, restore them to the presence of God. What about this tabernacle, the temple? Okay, second half of Exodus, the tabernacle, the temple. This is going to be, a, I want you to think about it. This blew me away when I just started giving more thought to this. Think of the focus throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even through the rest of the Bible. Think about the focus, the attention that is given to the tabernacle or the temple. We've got the building of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. Okay, so we're talking about now. We've got the laws in Leviticus showing how to enter into the tabernacle. So, so far, we've got a lot of stuff about the tabernacle in this place. Then we've got instructions and numbers about how to pick up and carry and transport this tabernacle. Three, book, three books in the Bible, four books in the Bible. This is a big deal. You see in it? We've got, we've got uh, the, the erecting of a more permanent structure called the temple which is just the the tabernacle more permanent in first kings and in the chronicles then we've got it being torn down and destroyed and ezra comes back and he's going to actually rebuild the temple i mean you're just seeing this pattern of the rest of the old testament from exodus all the way to malachi and even the rest of the bible is, is so much focus on this temple or on this tabernacle okay and we've even got people in the bible you read the psalms and you got people that just, the people, they just want to go there. I want to be there in the presence of God. Listen to Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. Do you see the focus throughout the Bible in this place? And the people of God want to get there. They want to get there. They want to get there. Okay? And so the question is why? Why so much emphasis in the Word on this temple? We know that God, nobody thinks that God was limited to that little space, right? I mean, even, even, even Solomon, after he built it, after he built this temple, Solomon said, God, the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I built? 
So we don't think, surely we don't think that when it says this was the dwelling place of God, that it was meant to constrict God as if he was constricted into this space called the Holy of Holies. But this was meant to be a picture, a copy, a shadow for us to understand something. So this is the reason for the emphasis. It's a copy, it's a shadow. It's to show us something that has happened and it is to come. And so the question is this. The next question again is this. How can wretched sinners, you got the people of God pulled out, going to be a picture for us all. You got the temple, the tabernacle where God's going to dwell with man. But how could wretched, sinful people dwell with a holy God that because of their sin banished them from his presence? How could this happen? And then comes the book of Leviticus. And you get the book of Leviticus and you see that here's one thing that's got to be there. A substitute has to be killed in your place. Blood has to be shed in your place. You get this picture in the the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus. The day of atonement where sin is going to be covered. Sin is going to be atoned for. And you got this priest laying his hands on the the head of a ram. And he's confessing over this, this animal all the sins of the people. Putting the sins onto the head of the ram. And then you think about it. You think about it. You think about sending that thing off into the wilderness. It's gone. Or you think about the other one and he takes a knife and he slits his throat and it's gone. Blood is being shed. The sin is going on to another and the punishment is going on to another. It's being transferred to another. And we get these pictures that there has to be a sacrifice. Man has sinned and death has to come. It has to come because our God is a just judge. A second thing you see in Leviticus is what? That a high priest must be there. You can't go in on your own. You can't do it. You need a high priest, a perfect, spotless, pure one to go in on your behalf. To be a mediator between you and God. To intercede for you. To intercede before God on your behalf. And this is what we're learning. You getting it? This is what we're learning in the book of Leviticus. This is what these people are learning. It's what God intends to show us. He's going to make His presence dwell in the tabernacle with these people. As a picture of what's been lost and what's going to be restored. And in the midst of that, He's showing all of us how are we going to be restored. One must die and there must be a mediator. It must be a high priest. This is the picture, okay? So you got this tabernacle as this picture. Think about it. This tabernacle is the picture, right? And that runs us all the way up. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We keep hearing about this temple. And we got this picture the whole way through. And then what happens when we break into the New Testament? Jesus gets here. Jesus. And He is the tabernacle. And He's the sacrifice. He is the high priest. He's all of it. And He shows up on the scene as the, te- the, the, the only way that we can be restored into the presence of God. I want to talk to you about Jesus as the tabernacle, as the sacrifice, and as the high priest. Think about it. Jesus, the tabernacle. Jesus comes as God in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word, the Word is a He. We know that from verse 2. The Word is, was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the word dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The word dwelt among us. It's talking about Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally tabernacle. You get that? It's literally Jesus tabernacled. He tabernacled with his people. God dwelling 
with man. And this is awesome. This is the reason why Jesus in Genesis, excuse me, John 2.19, it's the reason why he looked at those Jews and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. A little bit later it says, and he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so we got Jesus, the tabernacle of God. Okay? What's been lost? Man dwelling with God, now God comes to dwell with man. And you think about it, everywhere He goes, everywhere He goes, He, he's, he gives you little pictures of, of just like little pocket pictures of what, what was lost in Eden. Or even better yet, what's coming in the new Jerusalem. As, as he, he heals people. He heals the sick and He heals all of them in the town. And He gives you these little pictures of heaven everywhere that He goes. So you've got Jesus, the tabernacle. Jesus as the final sacrifice. He's, he, you think about it. You cannot enter into the Holy of Holies. You can't go back into the Garden of Eden. If you do, a cherubim is awaiting you there. And a flaming sword. And you will be slaughtered if you try to do it on your own and grab hold of the Tree of Life. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. And yet He comes. And He comes as a sacrifice, as a substitute. John John the Baptist looks at him in John 1, 29 and says, Behold, that's the Lamb of God. That is the Lamb of God. The one that was talked about in Leviticus. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. And you imagine us trying to step in and we try to step through that east gate of the Garden of Eden and restore ourselves back into the presence of God and we get slaughtered. But instead, Christ comes. And He picks up our sins and He carries it and He goes toward the east gate and He's slaughtered on our behalf. And so now we can follow Him and walk and be restored back into the presence of the living God. Christ Jesus has died. He's died for our sins. And this is the reason why when He was on the cross, if you remember, He's hanging there on the cross. Remember what happened? He gives up His Spirit after that last scream. It is finished! He says, it's finished. And he dies right there in the veil of the temple that separates the Holy of Holies. Just like the Holy of Holies of the Garden of Eden and that Holy of Holies which is to come in Revelation 21. And that veil of the temple gets torn in two from top and bottom. The way in has been purchased. So we got Jesus as the tabernacle. Jesus the final sacrifice. And now Jesus as the great high priest. After Christ was slaughtered in our place, what happened? He rose up from the dead. Christ Jesus, the Savior, rose from the dead. He walked with His disciples again on earth. He's seen by multitudes and multitudes of eyewitnesses. Christ Jesus, the high priest. And then He's seen by them ascending back into heaven to be seated on a throne as King of the universe and as high priest who can intercede for us, who can mediate for us. This means He's alive. This means He's still alive right now. Christ Jesus, the one who died for us, is still alive. What do you think about that? He's still living. He's a great high priest interceding on behalf of His people. Listen to Hebrews 9.24. Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. See, that one was just a picture. He didn't enter that one which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
And now through him, we've got free access into the most holy place, into the holy of holies. And so here we are, we're thinking through Genesis to Revelation. Genesis to Revelation, the temple, a tabernacle. Garden of Eden, tabernacle, lost. It's lost, and there's this picture given of to get back in and to be restored, you're going to need a sacrifice. Christ is that sacrifice. You're going to need a great high priest and a mediator. And Christ is that one who came, who is risen from the grave and still alive and can mediate on your behalf. And then he points our eyes to that coming, that final tabernacle in Revelation 21, in 21 verse 1 through 4. And I, just, I, I know we've read it, but I want to read it again. Listen to it. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Christ has taken the death already. No, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And here we are, wretched sinners. No way, no way do we deserve to go into that place. No way can we be restored into the Garden of Eden. There is no way that you can do that as a wretched sinner. It's a fearful thing to come before God with impurity on you. You'll be destroyed. You'll be cast into hell forever. And yet you see right here that Jesus has made a way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Let me make that positive. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you can get to the Father through Him. You can be restored into the presence of the living God through Him. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ Jesus suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Greatest gift of the gospel, He could bring you back to Revelation 21 and 22, back to God. So there's the temple the tabernacle from Genesis to Revelation, okay? Let's make a few takeaways here. Let's talk about a few takeaways, a few applications here. I want to say something, first of all, to the lost. As Dustin explained earlier about, we don't mean you just say you're a Christian. I'm talking, I want to speak. If you're here in the room and you're lost, that can mean you know you're lost or you could be like many people Jesus describes in Matthew 7, who actually call Jesus Lord and yet they're lost. And they come before Him thinking they're going to be okay and they go to hell forever. You know that's going to happen? So is that you? Are you lost here? Are you here and you do not know Christ? Believe what I said earlier. It is a, it is a lie. So many people come up under a lie thinking that they're saved because of something somebody told them. You said that little prayer, brother, you're going to be all right. Are you lost? And if you're lost, I want to say something to you. You are, you are Genesis 3, 22 through 24. The Lord God sent him out of the garden. He was driven. He drove out the man. 
And you must see this as a judgment. You have to see this as a judgment on yourself. You are separated from God. Your sin has separated you from God. You are the criminal that has rebelled against your Creator. You're the unclean one that cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. I want you to see the severity in this. And at the same time, I want you to see the mercy of God. The great mercy of God. Because in the same way, you think about it, if you're here and you're lost, in the same way that God showed mercy on Adam and Eve, and He sent them out, and He didn't allow them to eat of the tree of life so that they live forever in hell on earth. He didn't allow that to happen. Even so, God has sustained you. You are breathing right now. You're alive and well and you're okay right now. God has shown mercy to you. And you know why? You know why God has sustained you and given you so much mercy? Because the Bible says He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen to it. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is why you're breathing right now. He's been so merciful to you. Think about the mercy of Christ. Extend it out. So I would say to anybody here who's lost, Christ Jesus, the picture of that temple, the picture of that tabernacle, and Jesus coming as that sacrifice. Here's the presence of God. How can the people get into the presence of God and not die, not go to hell forever? How? Christ has come for you. And He's coming. This is the hand of mercy extended out. And this is extended out until you die or until the Lord returns. And so don't reject the mercy of God. I plead with you if you're lost. Don't reject the mercy of God. And if you're here and you're saved, you are not lost, but you have genuinely turned to Christ. You've repented and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to remind you of something. Genesis 3, 22-24, banished from the presence of God, that was you. It was you. You were driven from His presence. And I want you to remember this. And you were headed towards eternal destruction. That was you. Remember this. Remember Ephesians 2.12. Remember this. You were without Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, that's what you were, but now, listen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise to the living God. Brought near by the blood of Christ. And if you're saved here, I want to remind you of that. That verse commands you to remember that this was true. You were this, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. All right, one last, one last takeaway. Something that struck me as I study this passage of Scripture, okay? One last takeaway. I want you to think about it. Okay? And I'll just tell you what the takeaway is and then I'll get you to think about something. Okay, here's the takeaway. Let us be a people that are desperate for the presence of God. That we will be a people desperate for God. Not just the things of God, but God. We'd be desperate for the presence of God. That's my takeaway. But let me get you to think about something, okay? Think about this. The Garden of Eden was a tabernacle of God. I hope I've proven that to you. Then the tabernacle of God was among the people of Israel as an illustration. So it's tabernacle, tabernacle, okay? Then Jesus came as the tabernacle of God. And then we see what's coming. And what's coming is a tabernacle of God where all things will be made new. All things will be restored. But here's the question. Think. Well, what about now? What about now? 
Is there no tabernacle of God upon the earth now? What about now? What is the dwelling place of God upon earth now? What is it? 2 Corinthians 6.16, listen. This is said about the church of Jesus Christ. Some of you just said, it's us. It's the church, and that's right. And that ought to blow your socks off. Listen. 2 Corinthians 6.16. We are the temple of the living God. Guys, let me stop there. Did you just hear what I just... All this stuff I read about the temple of God? Did you just hear all that? And then this just said, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Whoa. Listen to Ephesians 2, 2.19. Now therefore, here's what you were. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built... On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, that's us, the building, that's us calling us a building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Did you hear that? Banished from His presence. We were banished. We were banished from where God dwells with man. Christ comes and He, he makes a way where we can enter back into the Holy of Holies. We can, the veil has been torn through the blood of Christ and we can enter back in. And now He looks at us on this earth right now and says, you're the temple of the living God. You are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit on this earth. So we were, Genesis 3, 22-24, a people cast out from God's presence. And now we are the people of the presence of God. The people where, where God dwells. So there's a lot we can glean from that, okay? That truth ought to stun you. And there's a whole, a whole bunch of things we can glean from it. But I want, to, I want to glean one thing here. And I've already said it. Let us be a people then that are desperate for the presence of God. Let us be a people. Think about Genesis 3. Banished from the presence of God. How terrible. A, made, a way is made back in. Let us be a people desperate for the presence of God. And I, I, don't, I, know, God, I know He's omnipresent God. He's all places at all times. There's nowhere you can hide from Him. I know this. The covenant presence of God. He promises, I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. But this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the presence of God. Psalm 105 verse 4 when He says, Seek his presence continually. What does that mean for you? Seek His face. Not just His stuff, but seek Him. Seek His presence. This is not about His stuff, it's about Him. Seek His presence continually. What, is, what does Jesus mean in John 14, 21 when He says, if you love me, you'll be loved by my Father. If you love me, you'll be loved by my Father and I will manifest myself to you. What does He mean? We're talking about the presence of God. Are you desperate? You, th you think, do your own examination. Are you desperate for God and His presence? I'm not asking you to do religious stuff. Are you hungry for the presence of God? That's the question. Are you hungry for the presence of God? Are you desperate for His presence? 
The temple called in the temple called the Garden of Eden. What happened? God dwelt with man. In this temple, among the people of Israel, God dwelt with man. Fire came down on that temple. Fire by day, a cloud by day, fire by night. God dwelt with man. Jesus came and dwelt with a man in that tabernacle. The tabernacle coming, God is going to dwell with a man. Are we not? Are we a temple here or are we not? Are we not to be a people? They want to dwell with God. They want the presence of the living God in their lives. To experience His presence. Are you desperate? So ask yourself that. Are you desperate for the presence of God? The people of Israel, I want you to think about this. The people of Israel wept. They wept. When God looked at them and said, I'll give you all the promises. You can have the promised land. I'll even send my angel ahead to protect you, to make sure nobody destroys you. You got it. Go ahead. But I'm not going. And they wept. Would you weep? Would you weep if you got it all, but not God? Would you weep? Would you cry out with Moses? God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. And then when God says, yes, I'll show you my presence, will you cry with Moses and say, God, show me your glory. I want you, God. It's you and not your stuff. It's you and not just your blessings. I want you. You are the reason we exist. The presence of God. Do you trust God that He will do this? Have you been numb to this? Do you trust God that as you are desperate for His presence, that He'll reveal Himself to you? He took Moses in the cleft of a rock and said, I'll show, I'll pass by you and I'll show myself to you. Do you trust him like that? That he'll reveal himself to you. And I pray that we would be a people. Let me read you some verses. Desperate for the presence of God. Listen to Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. This was about God. I want God. I can't do without God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. May we be a people like that, that thirst for God, that want his presence. Like this. Does your heart ever say these things? What about Psalm 84? Listen to it. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. He goes on to say, I'd rather be one day with my God in His courts than a thousand everywhere else. Where is that? Not just religious stuff, but God, the, the living God. You've been banished from His presence. You've been given access back to Him. Through Jesus Christ. I would say, the last thing I'll say here, that this is the mark. This is the mark. Is this not the mark of the New Testament church? Okay, A lot of you here. You're part of Grace Community Church. Man, you wanna, you, we're going after it. We want to be a biblical church. We want to be a, a God-honoring church. It doesn't just go with the traditions of men. But what does the Bible say? And this is why we function as a church. And you're with me on that. But it's not the mark of a New Testament church. This right here. A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
There's so much talk today. I want you to think about it. There's so much talk today about we want to be a New Testament church. We want to fit the pattern and the forms of the New Testament church. We want to do that. We want to fit the patterns and the forms. That's what we're going after, right? And very little talk about experiencing the presence of the living God. I want you to think about the Old Testament temple. Think about it. We've, we've already been going. Think about the Old Testament temple. All those instructions in Exodus, the end of Exodus, several chapters, all those instructions about how to build it. You realize anybody could build that? Anybody could build? What, what marked that as a temple? I mean, the Philistines could have got the, got the instructions, right? And went and built their own. We've got all these instructions, lots of details. We could build one today. We could do that. But you know what you can't reproduce? You can reproduce the form of the temple and the pattern of the temple, but you know what you can't reproduce? Cloud by day and fire by night, the presence of God is in this place so that Moses cannot even enter in. So let's say 50 of them were built. How would you know which one? Which one marked? What is the mark of that true temple? What is it? They all look the same. They all claim to be the temple. What is it? It's the mark of the presence of God on that place. And so that's what I'm telling you. Think about that. Think about all the lingo about the pattern of the New Testament church. And sometimes the pride that gets there, the pride that comes from that, that we, we are going after the pattern. And, and yes, we should do. Yes, we should look at the Bible to pattern our church. But I'm telling you, if we get all these patterns and all these forms right and we don't have the presence of God, it's worthless. It's worthless. You believe that? And therefore, we should be a people marked not just by patterns and forms, but a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What are you going after? Seek His presence continually. A people of God, a people of the presence of God. Think about these examples. I'm comparing this to a temple here. Listen, just listen. Don't flip with me, please. It's too much. Exodus 40, verse 34. Listen, listen to these pictures of the temple. Exodus 40, verse 34. The temple has been built. Listen. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What does that do to you? Let's go ahead a little bit. Leviticus chapter 9. Listen, God looks at him in verse 4 and says, Today the Lord will appear to you. He says to him in verse 6, This is the thing which the Lord commanded to you to do. And the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And you get over there to verse 23 and it says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And all the people saw it. They shouted and fell on their faces. And you thought Leviticus was boring. It's not what about, in, what about in Numbers? Let's listen to Numbers 9. I just, want to give, I just want you to taste these. Just, I don't know if I was going to read this or not, but listen. Numbers 9, verse 15. Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, from evening until morning, and it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. God's making it known. He dwells in this place. And again and again and again. Listen, when the, when the temple, that was the tabernacle, when the temple got built, 2 Chronicles. So listen to this. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 
Second Chronicles chapter 5. It came to pass, and this is in that temple, when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard and praising and thanking the Lord, when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. We see Him worshiping here. What happens? The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering there because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Then the king stands up and he prays about that house. And then what happens after he prays? Chapter 7. Then when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endures forever. And so I say this as a church. So then here we come, the church, the temple of God. Marked, what is the New Testament church marked by? A dwelling place for God in the Spirit. How about you think over there to 1 Corinthians 14 when one of the, an, an unbeliever, an un, uninformed person comes in among their meeting. And when he comes there, he comes into such the presence of God that he hits his face. This person hits, it's 1 Corinthians 14, I believe, 25. He hits his face and says, God is truly among y'all. God is truly among you. Marked by the presence of God. I don't want to arrogantly waltz around as if we got the pattern, we got the form, we have arrived and be a people in God. And, and then what does God do? He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. I don't want to be a people walking around arrogantly. Look at us with our form. We got it right. Look at us doing the Lord's Supper every week. Look at us doing that expository preaching and have this pride built up that we're doing these things in this just right pattern and the presence of God departs because of our arrogance. But rather, I would want to be a people of the presence of God. So I'll say it last time. Let us be a people desperate for the presence of God. Vanished and yet restored. Let's pray. Father, help us to walk in these things. Lord God, I pray that you help us to be a people marked by your dwelling place in the Spirit. God, I praise you. I worship you, God. We sing to your name because though we were banished and though we don't deserve to be in your presence and all we deserve is hell forever, and yet you made a way, Lord Jesus, through your sacrifice that we could be saved. I praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. And God, just like you said, you stand at the door and knock. And whoever opens the door, you said you'd come in and dine with them. I pray, God, you make us some people like that that open the door and dine with you, Lord. Make us a people that draw near through the way consecrated, through the veil that is, is your son's flesh. Make us a people that draw near again and again and again. God, make us people that draw near in the secret place when we're all alone with you. And God, make us a people that draw near into your presence when we come together. God, make us a people of your presence. God, reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.